but we'll be in John chapter 4, again this morning, revisiting the scene at the well. We've taken the, the past couple of weeks to dig into this story of, of Jesus and the woman at the well. It's an account that covers 42 verses, and it contains a number of different themes covering a number of different topics. We've seen the sovereignty of God in this passage, in the way that Jesus so perfectly orchestrated this meeting with this woman. We've seen Christ's heart for the lost, seen in the fact that he went out of his way to have this conversation with this Samaritan woman. We've seen Jesus make the offer of living water, that he's the ultimate source of satisfaction for our souls. We've even covered the topic of worship and how true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. Well, today we will see it all come together in a glorious climax. Today we will learn of the ultimate reason why John tells us at the beginning that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. There's a sense in which there's a bit of sadness in my heart this morning to see our time in this portion of Scripture come to an end. There's, there's so much here. Um, there's just so much treasure in these passages that we could really spend many, many weeks just unpacking it all and kind of following all of the rabbit trails, if you would, and they would be fruitful. Um, I would love to just linger here for a few more weeks contemplating the incredible, incredible grace of God towards sinners as displayed in Christ's love and compassion for this sexually immoral outcast. We're reminded here of the beauty of the gospel in this passage, aren't we? We're, we're reminded of our own lostness before Christ had a divine appointment set with us wherein he would offer us living water. One can't help but think of Paul's, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when he says, Such were some of you. When we think of this poor sinner's spiritual condition, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Though this woman and you and I were not born a part of the nation of Israel, though we can't trace our bloodlines back to Abraham and we were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, as Paul writes in Ephesians, even though all of that is true, Christ came into this world to bring us near. Those of us who once were not a people are now God's people. All of this is true because Christ Jesus was not the Savior of the Jews only. He was the Savior of the whole world. Or just was, is. And that, my friends, is the central point of this whole passage, verses 1 through 42. Though there are so many important themes and so many important topics that are covered, the main point is that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And we will see that explicitly today. 
We have a lot of ground to cover in our, as far as verses are concerned, so once again, you can feel free to remain in your seat. But look at verse 25. We'll read verses 25 to 30, and then we'll pray. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Father, I just want to ask for your help this morning. Lord, there is so much in this passage and so much to talk about and unpack, and I am woefully incapable of doing that without your help. I pray that you would help us all to see how beautiful Christ is in this passage. That we would be amazed once more, afresh, Lord, at Christ and His glory because of this passage. I pray that we would learn and worship in this passage pray that you please bless the preaching and the hearing of your word today. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. As you remember, we left off last week in verse 24, and Jesus was explaining to the woman true worship. That part of the conversation began with Jesus diagnosing the woman's sin, and the woman recognizing that this man before her is something more than just a stranger, that he was at least a prophet. She said, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So she asks him about worship. The Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim, but the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. So she wants to know what the prophet, who evidently has some sort of revelation from God, she wants to know what he has to say on the matter. Jesus tells her that the hour is coming. Something new is happening, in other words where what matters most about worship is not where you are. It won't matter whether you want to be on this mountain or in the temple or anywhere else. True worshipers worship in spirit and truth. We said then that at least the most fundamental meaning of that statement is that true worshipers are those who are worshiping God in the spirit of God through the Son of God That is, that we have been cleansed by the atoning work of Christ on the cross that was applied to us by the indwelling of the Spirit. That is a necessary prerequisite to worship, is that you are a Christian, is just essentially what that means. But this also has to do with the truth about God seeing, as seen as Christ in the flesh. Christ being God in the flesh. He walked this earth in a manner where he revealed the full revelation of the Father to the world. We learn that in Hebrews 1, that he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We learn about God through the person of Christ. He revealed God to us. He is the truth, in other words, about God, spirit and truth. So this spirit and truth has to do with the truth about God seen as Christ, seen in Christ rather, and being indwelt with the Spirit, 
So to worship in spirit and truth is worshiping in the spirit according to the truth about God as revealed in Christ Jesus. It's just a review. But it's doubtful that this woman grasped the depth of Christ's words here as evidenced by her statement in verse 25. She doesn't say, oh wow, that's amazing, I'm really looking forward to that. What does she say? I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. It's almost like she's saying, yeah, I don't know either. Yeah, I don't know if it's this mountain or in Jerusalem either, but whenever a prophet comes, when Messiah comes, he'll let us know. He'll tell us what the, th- the true thing is, the true way of worship. She doesn't understand fully what this man in front of her is speaking about or who this man is that she's speaking to, but I would argue here that she is at least starting to wonder. Perhaps her question is inviting a response. Or perhaps her statement, rather, is inviting a response. After all, this concept of location not being central to worship, it was absolutely foreign to her ears. She wouldn't, this would not make much sense to her. No, we worship on Mount Gerizim. That, that's, you can't worship outside of that. What, what are you talking about? So surely she's... she's interested in hearing a little bit more. After all, he's a prophet. And she tells him when the prophet comes, when the Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. This tells us something about what kind of view the Samaritans had of the Messiah, doesn't it? We know quite well that the Jews had this view of the Messiah where he was going to be this conquering political force and he was going to overthrow Rome and restore Israel to national prominence. But what did the Samaritans expect? Because they were also expecting Messiah. But they were expecting something different, weren't they? They were expecting him to be a teacher and a revealer of truth. When Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. He's going to reveal truth to us. Where did they get this idea from? Well, if you remember, we said that the Samaritans had Genesis through Deuteronomy. That was all that they believed was inspired scripture. None of the prophets, nothing else, just Genesis through Deuteronomy. But that was enough for them to have an expectation of the Messiah, wasn't it? Deuteronomy 18, God speaking, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. A prophet like you. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This is why they had this expectation that Messiah was going to be this revealer of truth. He was going to be a teacher because he was going to have the words of God and he was going to speak all of the words of God to them. They weren't necessarily wrong in their expectations, were they? The Messiah, Jesus, was indeed a revealer of truth. There was a level of their expectation that was actually accurate Sadly, more accurate than the Jewish people. The Jews had Genesis through Malachi, and what they took from that is, yes, Rome's going to be overthrown when Messiah comes. And the Samaritans had five books, and what they understood is that the primary role of the one sent from God is to reveal truth to us. What does Jesus say? I who speak to you am he. 
Jesus reveals his identity as the Messiah in an explicit manner to people other than the Jews because the Jews wanted their political leader. And had he told them who he was, they would have tried to take him by force to make him their leader. What are you talking about, Mac? They're going to force God to be their leader? Well, yeah, actually, it actually happens in John chapter 6, verse 15, after the account of the loaves and the fish, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. They loved to eat. They must have been Baptist. He's going to be our king. We'll always have bread and fish. It'll be potluck day every day of the week. He knew, he knew that they were going to try to make him king. And so that was why he wasn't revealing himself explicitly as the Messiah the way that he does here to the Samaritan woman. Not to Nicodemus. It wasn't in the temple. It was to this immoral woman. This Samaritan woman. This heretic. With all of that in mind, it's still there's still another level of this that we can't see in our English translations of what Jesus is saying. Because he's not only revealing his identity as the Messiah, but his identity as God. Now, if you'll bear with me a little bit, I want to tell you a Greek word. I know it's going to stick with you. I know, I know it will. The Greek is ego eimi. Ego eimi. It means I am. Am. And it appears in at least seven other places, followed by some sort of a description. So you see, ego me, the bread of life. Ego me, the light of the world. Ego me, the good shepherd. But sometimes it's just ego me without a title following it, such as in. John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, ego eimi. This is a statement that Jesus makes where he equates himself with the holy name of God in Exodus 3.14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. So when Jesus says, before Abraham was, Ego eimi, he is making a claim of his deity. And when Jesus says here, ego eimi, he's doing the same thing. Friends, to a Samaritan woman. Not to Nicodemus, not to the temple leaders, not to a Jew, but to a Samaritan and a woman. Think of this, church. He went out of his way to arrange this meeting with this sinful woman so that he could reveal his identity to her. What a marvelously privileged position our Lord has put this vile, sinful woman in. Brothers and sisters, what a marvelously privileged position our Lord puts us, sinful, vile people in when he reveals the same truth to our hearts and minds. Jesus Christ loves to save sinners. Not good people. Jesus loves to save sinners. Sinful, 
wretched people. He loves to save them. Text goes on. The disciples come back from getting their turkey sandwiches. They have no idea what incredible conversation has just taken place. John writes that they marveled that Jesus had just revealed himself as the Messiah and God. Is that what your Bible says? They marveled that Jesus was talking to a woman. Again, this is a scandalous scene. Rabbis did not talk to women, and certainly not in private. You know why? Because they thought it was taking them away from the study of Torah. And what did they call Jesus? Rabbi. So they come to this scene and they say, Rabbis don't talk to women. What is he doing? Rabbis don't talk to women. It's a shocking scene for them because they can only see at the surface. They can only see surface level. They are dull of heart. The woman runs off in so much excitement that she leaves behind her water jar. And even though she is an outcast, she rushes into the city proclaiming what has just happened. What a marvelous turn of events. I believe that John includes the detail of her leaving the water jar behind to symbolize the great transformation that has taken place in this woman's life. She came out to the well at a time when she thought that no one would be there because she didn't want to be seen. She was an outcast. She was a social pariah. And she came to the well to take water to quench her physical thirst, all the while unaware of her greater need to quench her spiritual thirst. But then after a revelation of the one true and living God, She leaves in such a hurry that she forgets about her physical thirst because her greater spiritual thirst has been quenched. And she then is now unashamedly proclaiming in her city, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. She's no longer ashamed of herself. Isn't this amazing? She didn't want to be seen at the beginning of the story. She wanted to be alone. She didn't want to be around anybody. And now, after having a conversation with Jesus and coming to meet Jesus, now she's not ashamed anymore. The whole city knows what she did. The whole city knows this woman. And there she is saying, come and see a man who who told me all that I ever did. Lady, we all know what she did. You're gross. You're you're an outcast. Why are you talking? But it's exactly that that caught their attention. She's not hiding anymore. That's weird. She's shouting in the streets. That's weird. What's going on? Something must have happened to her. You mean you're not ashamed anymore of of your past, of, of who you are? What's going on here? She could be inviting more public scorn, but her excitement is too great to contain because she has been changed. She has been set free. She has had a drink of living water. Could this be the Christ? You almost sense a bit of doubt in her question, but I think that she's 
inviting them to come to discover for themselves. Come and see this man. Could this be the Christ? What do you guys think? And as we see, it worked because we're told that the whole city came out to Jesus to see what this was all about. What an incredible scene. This lady hides from public view. She's obviously ashamed of her life. She doesn't want to be seen. She just wants to disappear and never to be thought of again. But now she's drawing all of this attention to herself by making this loud proclamation and causing a scene about this man who told her all that she ever did. He read her heart. He knew her past. And he gave her a future. We have to go see what's going on for ourselves here. This is really bizarre. We have to go see for ourselves. Friends, what would it be like if the work of Christ in our hearts had the same effect in our lives? That we weren't eager to hide our faith, but that we were eager to proclaim, come and see. Come, behold the wondrous mystery. Come and see for yourself. Come and see this man who, who reads my heart, who, who knew my past. Come and see. How much would this change things in our lives? All of this is because Jesus revealed his identity to this sin-sick soul. And now the story cuts to a scene that serves as an explanation of what's going on and why Jesus had to go through Samaria. Look at verse 31. Jesus reveals his mission. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. The more that I have looked at this section right here from verses 31 through 38, the more it is just a heartbreaking moment. Imagine the scene. The disciples have just come back to find Jesus speaking with this Samaritan woman. She rushes off back to the city. And now off in the distance, they can probably see a crowd starting to form coming to Jesus. And so what is it that they say? Rabbi, eat. Here, eat your sandwich that we brought you. No word about how amazing it is that clearly something is going on. No, it's just eat. Jesus responds, I have food to eat that you don't know about. What? Did, did someone else bring him a sandwich? How did he get food? I don't even see any wrappers on the, the ground. How did he eat something? I say this section is heartbreaking because of how obviously dull the human heart is. 
We've seen it four times in this gospel so far. And we see it more in the gospel. But we saw it in the temple scene in chapter 2, if you recall. Jesus had proclaimed, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And everyone with their dull hearts, what? It's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to rebuild it? Well, he was talking about the temple of his body. Then in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you have to be born again. If one is not born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, huh? How do you expect me to return to my mother's womb? Even with the Samaritan woman. Woman, I am here to offer you living water. The kind that if you drink it, you'll never thirst again. The woman, what? You don't even have a bucket. You expect this dullness and blindness from lost people. But then you come to followers of Christ, his disciples, and we find the exact same dullness of heart. I have food that you don't know about. What? Who gave him a turkey sandwich? This wide sampling of different kinds of people teaches us that it's not just one particular kind of person who cannot grasp the spiritual things. It's all people. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. He who is of the earth speaks in an earthly way. The natural man cannot discern the things of God, for they are spiritually discerned. That biblical statement is proven in these people's dullness. The temple leaders, the teacher of Israel, this sinful, sexually immoral woman, and even Christ's own disciples fail to understand. See, Jesus doesn't speak like we speak. He's God. He speaks with a completely different frame of reference than you and I. God speaks with an understanding of of all things. He sees both what's happening in physical, in this physical realm, and in the spiritual realm. And He speaks from a place of absolute truth. But you and I, the way that we speak is, oh, that burrito was awesome. Really? The burrito inspired awe and reverence in your heart and fear? Maybe it's just acid reflux. But that's how we speak. But every single word that proceeds from God's mouth is eternally thoughtful and well-placed, and well-crafted. And it's because of that that when we're in the flesh, we just don't get it. We just don't see it. It's possible for followers of Jesus to be so caught up in worldliness and so fleshly that when you come to the Bible, it's boring. It's boring. I don't understand. What is he talking about? This is so boring. All of the spiritual treasure available to us in the pages of Scripture, they might as well be as unto us a beige wall. This is so boring. There's nothing of interest. There's nothing that moves your heart. There's nothing here that even makes any sense. Friends, have you ever been there? Maybe you're there right now. 
Maybe that's the condition of your heart right now. Brothers and sisters, we expect the world. We expect that they cannot understand spiritual things. But it's entirely possible for you and I as professing believers to live in such a way that you are so in the flesh that the word of God does not move you. You come to it and it's just, it, you might as well be reading the Lubbock Avalanche Journal. It's just words. It doesn't move you. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't stay in your heart. You don't desire it. You hear things like Jeremiah saying, I, I ate God's words and they were sweet in my mouth. You read the Psalms that say that there is great treasure here, that, that God's word is more to be desired than gold. You say, what? I'd rather have gold. A Christian can live in the flesh. Not for long. A Christian will be disciplined. Or else they prove that they are an illegitimate child. But it's entirely possible for us to be so caught up with things of the flesh that the things of God are just... What, what do you mean you ate already? Did someone already give you a sandwich? We don't get it. You'd rather scroll mindlessly through social media than to read the words of the true and living God. We'd rather listen to Pastor Tucker rant about the Democrats for another hour than hear one more sermon. I hope that's not true of any of us. I hope it's not. But if it is, friend, confess that before the Lord today and repent of that. And ask him to help you to restore to you the joy of your salvation like this woman had. Isn't that just such a sweet moment when you just came to know Christ. And you have just sensed the release of your sins. And you can't wait to tell people. And you're excited and it's thrilling. And then you just grow up and it's boring. And it's just, where's the joy anymore? Where's the... Where's the passion? Where's the zeal? It's nowhere to be found. Friend, if that's you, pray this morning. Don't leave here with a dull heart. Don't leave here still slow to understand. Back to our text. Jesus explains his food. Verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The disciples have their minds set on things of the earth, you see. On lunch, Rabbi, eat. But Christ has his mind on the things of God. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus tells them that doing the work that God sent him here to do is more satisfying and sustaining to him than food. In fact, it is food. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus perfectly models, seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added unto you. In that text, there is teaching about anxiety and worry about the things of the world. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about the clothes you're going to wear. Don't worry about those things. Seek first the kingdom of God. And then you see it in Jesus' life. He's not worried about lunch. He is seeking first the kingdom of God. He prioritizes the will of the Father above all else. And the Father sustained him 
until the appointed time of his suffering. He was not harmed a day sooner than the appointed day. Not even hunger could sway him. After all, this long journey, though it might have made him hungry and thirsty, it was surely a far cry from the 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness where he was fasting and then tempted by Satan. But what did he say then? Man shall not live by bread alone. What do you mean, Jesus? I mean, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's what he means by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus will not be deterred by his human needs from completing what the Father had sent him to do. Jesus was tired, he was hungry and thirsty, and he took the time to minister to the soul of this Samaritan woman because his food was to do the Father's will. He brought her to faith, and through her testimony, brought the whole town to faith. Contrastingly, Jesus sends this whole group of disciples to a lost people, and they came back with sandwiches. Do you see what I mean by heartbreaking? Where were their priorities? There's, they were focused on getting food, probably focused on not dealing with the Samaritans more than they had to. And so they're too caught up with earthly concerns to share the good news of having found the Messiah. They were too hungry. But on the other hand, Jesus puts all of his new, all of his human needs on the side while he ministers to this lady. And the lady leaves behind her water jar in excitement to share the good news. Jesus told the disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Well, what was this will? What does that mean? What was the will of God for Jesus while he was here on this earth? Before we answer that, it's worth pointing out that Jesus, being this consumed with doing the will of the Father, is prophesied. Psalm chapter 40, verses 7 and 8. Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. It was prophesied that Jesus would be this way. But then he tells us clearly what God's will was for him. You can flip there if you'd like, but it's chapter 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven... Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. The will of God for Jesus was that he would come to earth to save sinful people. And not just the Jews, but as Jesus said, everyone who looks on the Son. And who are these people that will look upon the Son? They are those who, verse 39 said, are the ones that the Father has given to the Son. The Father gave a Son to a people to the Son, and the Son came to the earth 
to rescue and redeem those people. In other words, Jesus came to this well. He came, he had to go through Samaria because this woman was given to the son and it was the father's will that she would be saved. This adulterous Samaritan woman was given to the son. And he doesn't say, are you serious? You can give me the, the religious leaders? No, he comes and says, woman, I have living water to give you. Don't you love God's heart for saving sinners? I don't know if we think about this enough, but God loves to save sinners. That Christ loved this will of God so much that it was food to him. He loved so much to do what God sent him to do, which was to save sinful wretches. That he said, this is my food. And guess what? He completed the will that God had for him. John 17, 4. The son praying to the father. What an awesome chapter. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What did Jesus say on the cross? 1930. Jesus receives the sour wine and he says, it is finished. What's finished? The work that he has been sent here to do. The will of the Father. The food. It was finished. Christ would not die until he chose to lay down his life and he would not choose to lay down his life until every last bit of the Father's will had been accomplished. And we see that here in what he talks about the harvest. Jesus needs to teach his dull-hearted disciples to have the same heavenly, eternal perspective that he has. Friends, you and I need to be taught by our Lord to, to not have this dull-hearted view of the world, but to have this eternal perspective that he has. Look at the text. He says, do you not say... There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. There's, there are at least two meanings of what Jesus says here with the question about four months in the harvest. First, it's probably just a simple statement that would be made about agriculture in general. That you sow and then four months later-ish, you reap. Don't you all have the saying that it takes four months after you plant to harvest? It's what he's saying. There's a waiting period where you are waiting for the crop to grow before it's ready to harvest. But secondly, and closely tied to that first one, this could produce the idea that there isn't much for us to do except for just to sit around and wait until harvest time. I believe that's what's going on here because Jesus then tells them, look, lift up your eyes. The field is already for harvesting. We're not needing to wait another four months because we will harvest today. Verse 36. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and reaper may rejoice together. He makes it clear to them that he's not speaking about agriculture. Lest they prove their dull heartedness once more. But he's talking about a harvest of souls. 
He's speaking of planting the seeds of the gospel and reaping the fruit of eternal life. In the kingdom, there is no need to wait for four months before reaping a harvest. Christ had just sown the seed of the gospel in this woman's heart, and now, minutes later, they are reaping the harvest. But he's also showing them that there's always sowing and reaping work to be done. It's always there, both sowing and reaping at the same time. There's always a need to sow seeds of the gospel. And there is always opportunity to reap a harvest produced by the gospel. Now, There's a lot of discussion around who the sowers and the reapers are in these verses. But I think that the context helps us. Scholars say that it would have been traditional for these Samaritans to be wearing white. So when Jesus says, look up, he's probably saying, look, they're coming. And they were probably wearing white. So he's saying, the field is white for harvest. Look, we're going to harvest right now. I planted one seed in this one woman and look at this abundant crop. We are going to harvest. I'm sure the farmers in here would love it if they could plant one seed in the middle of a field and reap a giant harvest. Well, that's how it is in the kingdom. One seed. And look at all of the fruit. But who would be the sower then? If that's the way we would look at this text, well, Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Jesus sows into the woman. The woman sows into her city, and now Jesus is inviting his disciples to enter into their labor and reap a harvest. The beauty of this is that even though the disciples have been dull of heart, even though they didn't sow any seeds when they went into the city, Jesus still invites them into the joy of reaping a harvest of souls. Verse 36 so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. He's teaching them about kingdom agriculture, if, you, if I could say that. In kingdom agriculture, it is simultaneously time to sow and time to reap. But whether you are reaping or sowing, there is much joy in the work because the sower and the reaper rejoice together. Now we arrive at the main point of this whole passage. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. What a climax. John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Whoever he so loved the world, not just Israel, not just the national people of Israel, not just the Jewish people, but that he so loved the world 
so that whoever, not just Israelites, but whoever would believe could be saved. And here we are in the very next chapter seeing proof of that verse. Jesus brings a sexually immoral Samaritan woman to saving faith and through that woman's testimony he brought many from the whole town to faith. A town full of a people group hated by the Jews. Here we see exactly why John wrote that they had to pass through Samaria. They had to pass through Samaria because Jesus wanted food. The food of doing the will of God, which was to bring this town to salvation. And in so doing, to make it clear that Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. He's not just the Savior of the Jews. And he does this through the woman's testimony at first. The woman's great excitement and desire to share this news with her town led her to proclaim what had happened to her, to her whole town. Do you see that she didn't have the gospel presentation nice and buttoned down? Isn't that our excuse? Well, I don't really know what to say. Isn't that what we let get in our way? Well, what if they ask questions and I don't know how to answer them? What did this lady say? I don't know. Come and see this man who told me everything I ever did. I don't even know if this is a Christ. Could it be? Come and see him. When Christ has changed your heart, friends, we should match that. We can't match Jesus here. No way. We can aspire to that and strive to be that. But surely we can match this woman who's saying, come and see. I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I don't know all the stuff. But just come. Come and see him. He's amazing. He changed my life. I was lost. I was sexually immoral. I was an adulterer. And he saved me. That's all I know. Come and see for yourself. Surely we can do that. But it requires us to have the same eternal perspective. To see that the field is white for harvest. To not be so focused on our earthly pursuits. Even the good earthly pursuits. Was there anything sinful at all about the disciples getting food? No, we're human. You need food or else you die. There was nothing wrong with that. They were not being sinful in getting food. That's a normal thing. But their mind was so focused here, just on the things of the earth, that they could not see the fields white for harvest. And I wonder how often we get so caught up with our day and the things that we have to do in the day and work and meetings and calls and demands going here, going there, washing this, cleaning that that we never look up and see that the field is white for harvest. We never look up and see. We never say come and see because our heads are down. How often does that happen to us, friends? They heard her testimony and they believed. Your testimony is important for your friends and your loved ones to hear. 
It is important. God can use it. But ultimately, what saves is people seeing for themselves. A person cannot believe through someone else or believe in God because their friend or family member believes in God. You see what happens in this text? Each person has come to the exact same conclusion that the Samaritan woman came to. Each person has to hear the word for themselves and know for themselves that this is indeed the Savior of the whole world. When we come to know this truth, we drink of living water that becomes in us a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And we are enabled to worship God in the Spirit and through the Son. And we are made true worshipers of the true and living God. This can happen for anyone who believes upon the Son. So where are you this morning? Have you believed upon the Son? Have you put your trust in His mission to save sinners? Have you tasted of living water? Friend, the same invitation that was made to this woman, that this woman made to her city, is made to you today. Come and see for yourself. Come and see that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I just want to confess my own tendency to be spiritually dull, to not have the eternal perspective. Lord, I pray that all of us in here who that resonates with us, that you would not just make us feel bad about it and then we move on with our day, but that we would turn from that, Lord, and seek to be more heavenly-minded. I thank you that you save sinners such as us, that you're not just after just the, the cream of the crop, but you, for some of us, like myself, you scrape the bottom of the barrel. I thank you that you save sinners. I pray that you would help us to be excited about that and want to tell people. We pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.